Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to steamy, hot, summery Wisconsin. Unless, of course, you live along the lake. We have our full panel with us this week to discuss so much that is going on, both nationally and in our state, which means Claire Zauke, our healthcare director, is with us. Claire, great to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. And Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Robert, good to see you from your home. Good morning uh, to our digital and our, our radio audiences. So, folks, uh, panel, I hope you're uh, ready. We're going to have to move swiftly. We have got a lot to talk about. There is big stuff happening at the federal level. A lot of stuff moving through the legislature we want to talk about. I wanted, however, to start the show with a discussion of some research that came out yesterday, I believe it might've been the day before from ProPublica, which is amazing research, investigative and public sort of journalism uh, operation. And what they found is super important. First of all, listeners, make sure you go look and read about this if you haven't, because it's very important for us as progressives. They found that essentially the wealthiest 25 Americans paid less than 4%, I believe it was 3% something of their uh, overall uh, uh, wealth and income in taxes, right? And that is a shockingly low number given that they also found the average American pays around 14%, right? And we all know they ought to be paying more in theory. But what I want to do is I want to get the panel's quick response to this because I think this is important. We ever we will have a revenue issue if we want to achieve a lot of the things that we as progressives think government ought to be doing. And we're going to have to have revenue. And this gets to one of the crux of the problems. The reason these folks don't pay so much is because most of their stuff is an income. They're able to hide it as wealth, right? And it is wealth. So I want to have both of you comment first on the research, but also have a quick conversation and a back and forth about the importance of a wealth tax in this country. Robert? Your initial thoughts, and then uh, Claire, obviously, want to want to hear both of your your response to this this important uh, data. Well, this is amazing journalism, and it's an ama- it's amazingly timely. This is probably the greatest leak of Internal Revenue Service data that we've had, and it reveals the burning question of our age. Right? How how is it that we're supposed to have no money when we've had this incredible uh, expansion of wealth and concentration of wealth? And what it shows is, is that with the tremendous income inequality that's developed in the last 40 years, which has been by deliberate government policy because of the influence of, of the wealthy and well-connected, uh, not only have they, one of the reasons they poured a lot of the wealth, not the only reason is because our progressive tax system has become incredibly regressive. So the more you make, the less you pay. And that is the opposite of what the ethics of this country were for half, uh, over half a century. And what's got a lot of attention also is some very, you know, well-known people uh, like Jeff Bezos, for example, or Elon Musk, who in, in certain tax years pay zero, right, and or, or pay huge, minuscule amounts. And this is because they make their money on wealth, not actual income. And then what they actually do is to build their yachts and go flying in space, right, is they actually take out loans on the asset, but they never realize the gain, right? That is sell it in order to be taxed on it and just hold it for future generations. And at the same time, we have this bizarre thing where 
the Republicans in Congress and the uh, supposed problem solver committee that's now supposedly working on a infrastructure compromise are trying to take taxes off the table. But at the same time, they don't want to rub deficits. At the same time, there's understanding that we have this incredible need for infrastructure spending, that we're trillions and trillions of dollars of unmet need there, where we're getting a DD plus uh, from the major experts. And so you have really something has to give here. uh, But this is incredibly timely journalism. And uh, I I understand the IRS and the Department of Treasury are going to be investigating how it got out. But really the important thing for us is everyone's known this. Now it's clear, thanks to this reporting. There's going to be more reporting. Apparently, this is the first article that will be written off of the data. I think uh, what Robert lays out is um, really interesting and is a sort of cogent and compelling uh, case for why a wealth tax is important in this country and not just income taxes, right? Um, Because, you know, the ultra-wealthy, um, as uh, AOC says, nesting yachts, wealthy <laughs> level of folks, um, that are really good at um, distorting how uh, what their income looks like, and uh, that will result in what this report found, uh, which is that folks will end up not paying uh, income taxes, right? Because it looks like they had losses or um, it looks like they spent their money um, in ways that allow them to make tons and tons of um, uh, discounts on paying their taxes, um, deductibles, I don't know I said, discounts. Um, <laughs> I'm actually like a tax nerd. It's like my brain is, is like freezing up a little bit when I'm trying to talk about this because I'm so excited. Um, but this is why um, a wealth tax is so important, right? Because it taxes not just how much money somebody made an entire year, um, but what their total worth is and what the value of all of their um, property and whatnot is for that year. And um, this allows us to look at somebody like um, Jeff Bezos and say, uh, like, clearly you are the wealthiest person in, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world, one of the wealthiest people in this country. And, um, you know, you don't get to say that you didn't make any money this year. Um, and, and you should be allowed, you should be helping to support our whole, um, society since you're profiting. So, um, so extremely highly off of it. What, what I also want to let our listeners know, which is super important, is this is an extraordinarily popular issue. And it's also where the progressive and sort of the moderates, right, can come together and be in agreement. But we're talking about something here where uh, the most recent polling, uh, Data for Progress poll, finds 68% support this overall, right? And what's really, really super important is 66% of independents and even 57% of Republicans support this. So it has very broad, broad uh, support, and it can also galvanize across what I would describe as the Democratic coalition. Um, so a- any final thoughts uh, on this? Because we do have to move to a-, a conversation of what's going on in Congress. Claire, yes. The last thing I'll say is um, this issue of the wealth tax is super important, and it's an important pay for for how we're going to fund things like Medicare for all and prescription drug reform. Um, but it also should be paired with um, some corporate tax reforms as well. And um, you know, the example that I always point to when talking about this issue is reforming uh, the tax loopholes that corporations like prescription drug corporations get. Right, so um, they get um, a ton of free federal research and funding 
funding to support drug production, but then they also get huge tax breaks for things like marketing, which um, you know are just used to direct market drugs for us, which only happens in the United States and New Zealand. It doesn't happen in, in a lot of other comparable um, like economic size countries, right? Um, and then and then they just get to set the prices as high as they want, right? So like there's tax loopholes that also exist on the corporate level, um, that at the same time as we're reforming the individual tax code through the wealth tax, we also need to be reforming at the federal level, right? And so I want to make that plug too. Uh, well, I appreciate you pointing that out. I actually believe, and I, what I want to do on the show more is have sort of where's the revenue uh, sections where we have conversations occasionally about what are some of the most important things we ought to be doing as progressives on the revenue side. So Claire, we'll, we'll have to have a a further discussion of what could happen on the corporate side. But what I would like to do is move to Robert. Robert, do you have something else you want to say on this, it looks like? And bear in mind, this is not policy mistake. This is by design. And our Congress, our presidents have not represented the people of this country. They've represented the people who pay for their campaign. So this is very fundamental to whether we have a functioning democracy or not. Well. That is an excellent point, but the next topic, Robert, is the same kind of uh, question. Are we going to have a functioning democracy or not? It's a, it's a beautiful segue. Uh, look, Robert, you have been on this show, I'll, I'll just say it, uh, pretty uh, positive about the concept that we would somehow eventually pass something around democracy because it was so important and that Democrats would be in a permanent minority and, you know, that that uh, in particular, Senate one or something like it would move this week. Right. We were continuing to see real concerns around Manchin and, and others around the filibuster, which would be necessary in order to move something big. So I want to get both of your thoughts. Start with you, Robert, on can the Democrats actually get something through that will protect our democracy, whether that's Senate one or something else. Uh, and then also, if if you feel like it, right, the infrastructure, the, the bipartisan approach on infrastructure broke down. They're trying to restart it, right? But doesn't look great. Um, get your thoughts on this and thoughts on the ability of uh, the filibuster on these critical issues. Robert, you first, and then Claire, obviously want to hear from you. I know we're coming to break, so I will just say very quickly that I've been positive, Matt, because I want us to focus on our own agency. That is, we as progressives and activists as citizens. But predicting what will actually happen is like predicting whether the Brewers will win, the, win their division this year. But if the Brewers were only to focus on what the Cubs and Cardinals would do instead of their agency, they would definitely not win the division. So they will win I really want to focus. Thank you. There I'll you focus go. on that. Yeah, yeah. But Robert, with that, I'm going to I'm going to give you a a break here. We're going to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. And I'm going to remind you this weekend is our second inoculation emancipation party. It's going to be in Fitchburg, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Join us. We'll have more later. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Robert, we had to interrupt you to go to a break. You were about to tell us a little bit more about the situation we face uh, around our critical democracy bills and whether we're going to be able to uh, get a filibuster uh, removed or deal with it in order to pass something. Robert? 
Look, it remains an open question, but we have to try. And if we cannot succeed, we have to come out in some way that we built more power so we do not give control to the neo-fascist uh, conservative party in the next election. And so, but we have to get everything we could possibly get. And so I would propose radical pragmatism, but we have to see the role of activism and citizens and pushing in doing this. So we have a problem that we have a very narrow majority in the Senate, which of course it would be hard to pass big, bold things under any circumstances with that for, for either party. We have an age of polarization and division that's been driven by the right-wing movement in this country. And we have a group of senators, a small group of Democratic senators, who believe in a bipartisan myth that is as fictitious as the belief that we could get a compromise to settle the slavery issue before the Civil War. And all the failed compromises led to the bloodiest conflict in American history. Fortunately, it did settle uh, uh, slavery and, and lead to emancipation, though not equal rights. And so we have to deal with that. So that's a reality. We can't predict what Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema will ultimately do and a couple other senators who've gotten less attention. But the filibuster was created by the Jim Crow South deliberately. It's not part of the Constitution. And uh, Mitch McConnell has turned it into a, a, a bar for any piece of legislation other than the ones that help them. That is budget reconciliation lets them give away huge tax cuts to the wealthy and corporations. They did the biggest in history under Trump and allows them to appoint federal judges in order to rewrite the law from the bench as politicians, right wing politicians in robes. And so we've got to keep pushing. We have not lost yet, but we have to get anything we can get. And there really is a problem where a mansion and a cinema, they do not benefit from a route here where they are the ones responsible for killing it. Uh, killing any everything that people want and what is needed, and then having the Democrats get destroyed in the 2022 election if that were to happen, which would be devastating. So uh, it's, it's far from over. We're mid-season here, but it's very challenging. And uh, the, the daily comments from Manchin are not encouraging, you have to admit. Claire? Uh, we've talked about some past podcasts. My feeling haven't changed, so I won't say too much. Um, I, I think this is stupid policy and stupid politics. I think the American people are in a transactional mode right now. They're like, we want our, we want uh, economic growth. We want more affordable health care. We want stimulus checks. Um, we want, you know, voting rights. We want ref all kinds of different reforms and. Um, to, to be obstructionist to that is, like I said, not only bad policy, but bad politics. And to think that the American people care more about some antiquated parliamentary rule than, like I said, shots in arms, checks in pockets, cheaper health care than, um, you know, than those, those elected officials are really out of touch with, uh, with what people want and need. And just to connect to our other segment, these senators do not represent the public. So Claire is totally right about where the people are, but we don't really have a representative democracy. There are some political scientists who say that we, we actually function as a plutocracy now in the tax code and the bombshell revelations about how little the billionaire class pays in taxes are part of that. And so that's a, a, a character like Joe Manchin or, or Senator Kirsten Sinema. They are a function of that. And it's the campaign finance system. It's everything else. So the system is designed to produce what's producing, which is nothing bold that would that would actually 
benefit most people in this country to allow that that a a very tiny wealthy minority here to hoard almost all of the economic gains of the society and all the work of everyone else. So that's where we are, but we have to push through the system in a weird sort of way. We have to make this broken system work in order to fix it and replace it. Well, before we transfer on to state issues, I do want to point up this week, there was one area of bipartisan support that uh, appears to be happening. And that's around a bill that's going to provide uh, a lot of uh, needed uh, research and technology and things around uh, science and technology and investment. Unfortunately, it was done completely under the guise of being competitive with the rising uh, red China, right? And it's just it's, uh, it was unnecessary to pass the legislation. And uh, I want to bring this up because we've had to- Tobita Chow on uh, this podcast twice uh, talking about this. And we just really continue to urge progressives to stay on top of our leaders. If you hear any, any progressive leaders using anti-China sentiment to try to pass what is good for you know Americans. It's just it's it's terrible. And hearing Chuck Schumer on the floor uh, you know talking about our competitive with China to pass this was disappointing. But with that, want to move to state issues because there was a ton that uh, went on in the legislature this week. But before we get into that, Claire and Robert, I wanted to get your comments on stuff that we have talked about in the past, and this is around uh, structural racism and how it shows up in our healthcare system. Uh, and Claire, I know there was some, there's a, a lot of research about these inequities in the healthcare system. And then there was also a new number this week, uh, this week that obviously reflects a lot of these, and it's around our vaccination rates uh, in Wisconsin and just how bad the uh, discrepancies are around race. Claire, uh, you lead our uh, conversation here. Obviously, very interested in both your thoughts about this data and why it's so important. Yeah, and this is uh, something that we've talked about a fair amount on um, the podcast, and I've sort of given updates on these numbers as as we've gone uh, sort of through the vaccination process in the state. And there continue to be uh, vaccination disparities in Wisconsin, just as there are other um, racial disparities in the health systems in this country. So this should not be a surprise for folks. Um, So as of um, uh, June, Wednesday, June 9th, uh, about 49% um, or 2.8 million people um, of Wisconsinites have been vaccinated. Uh, 45% of white Wisconsinites have been vaccinated, but only 24.8, so about 25% of black Wisconsinites had been vaccinated. the um, interestingly, the number of um, Asian American Wisconsinites ha- um, is is pretty equal percentage wise the population to white Wisconsinites, um, but it's also um, a um, a much a smaller number than um, than Black Wisconsinites, and I think um, shows that there continues to be um, something specific to the. Um, the persistent and pernicious um, institutional, you know, racism and and racial and ethnic disparities 
um, that as they sort of specifically relate to um, the Black and Hispanic uh, communities in Wisconsin. Oh, I forgot to mention only 33 and a half percent of um, Hispanic, and I'm using the word Hispanic because that's what's on the state's DHS website, um, had been, been vaccinated or at least received one dose. I'm not even I'm not even counting folks who've received um, the full vaccination series. Yeah. Yeah. And these numbers are just in many ways still overall low, including the disparities. Robert, your thoughts on the disparities and again, why this is so important for going forward here in Wisconsin and and just in other places of the country too. Well, there's been a lot lot of lip service paid during COVID-19 to the racial disparities and very little done structurally. And look, our biggest problems in terms of controlling the pandemic and not having new variants come out that risk everyone's health and breach the uh, vaccines is vaccine denial from the right, which continues on Fox News Daily with attacks on they've made Anthony Fauci into the new uh, boogeyman. And then all and then not getting to folks who are who are very low income and, and more marginalized. And so this is race and class together. And where is the giant public investment to reach all the folks who want to be vaccinated and haven't been reached, right? Where is that? And where is even the proposal for it? And, you know, Governor Evers does have a lot of federal money he could have, he could assign to this uh, from the American Rescue Plan and from the CARES Act. Where is that? And where is the giant public media campaign? Why are we not doing wall-to-wall ads. In fact, we should require the major media firms to provide these gratis because they get the public airways for free and have commodified them and have the best Madison Avenue ad people put them together so that they're as beautiful as the pharmaceutical ads that we are treated to daily. But instead, you get these clunky 1950s-style public uh, service announcements, and they're not even at prime time. So it's just a disconnect between the, the, the disparity and the, and, the, and the consequences for everyone and the, and the racism of it and our, our actual reaction as a society and as a government. And with that, folks, we have got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. You're talking about things that are happening here in our state. Uh, Want to focus on what's been going on in the legislature. It is worth noting that uh, this week we did find out we have a revised estimate on what the Republican cuts in the Joint Finance Committee to our schools. Uh, again, they cut significantly uh, from what Governor Evers had proposed. Will now cost us $2.3 billion in federal revenue. Uh, and we've talked about that mistake, but originally it was thought to be 1.5. So significant increase there. Um, One of the things, though, that I want to get the panel's comment on that I think is one of the more devastating things that they continue to be up to, and that is the rigging of our elections. Uh, And this week, there is an effort by Republicans, sure, to be vetoed, uh, but it just underlies their insatiable uh, appetite for power. Uh, and that they can't actually win in competitive elections. And uh, this week they look to delay redistricting a year, uh, you know, which of course throws into delaying local and uh, all the local redistricting. I want to get to the panel's uh, comments on this, because again, this is critical. We're talking about basic democracy here. 
look, there's a broader story here, Matt, and you're on to it. They believe that elections are just for giving them power. And so they already believe in an incredibly undemocratic view that if we have the power to choose our voters and create minority rule, that that's fine. And that's good because what conservatives want to do is just, it's not about democracy. And they actually don't believe that people who disagree with them should have any voice in our government. And so that's why it's deeply suspicious that we're going to talk about not doing the local redistricting. Uh, it's certainly with all the changes in population and growing areas is going to uh, undermine one person, one vote if you do the next elections on maps that are over 10 years old. But in addition, it's also potentially going to cause more racial disparities because you legally have to take into account representation of people of color and other marginalized minorities. And whether this is part of a strategy, some have hinted at this, to be part of their overall gerrymander, like the start of delaying the, the state maps until for two years so they can use the old Scott Walker maps. Unclear at this point, but let me put it this way. If, they, if, if there was a way for them to do it, they certainly would. Yeah. And look, I just let's remind everyone there's been significant changes in our population in the last 10 years. Madison, Dane County, 14% increase in population. That is a they don't they lose their voice in the next election that chunk if we don't redistrict and reapportion so there's plenty of reasons why they want to do this but with that let's let's look at uh, and talk about another issue that uh, the republicans are up to this week and that we talked about this a little bit last week this trumped up labor shortage we're going to be hearing more about this this is this is going to be never ending and this week the republicans voted to cut uh, in, in the assembly, the $300 a month of federal unemployment insurance that is going to folks uh, who are still, as we know, many people still very much impacted by the pandemic. Claire, again, this demonstrates the Republicans not being in touch around the COVID pandemic, but just sort of their basic orientation to not caring about the situation of regular workers. Yeah, this um, this is Another example of the uh, decade-long, more than that, decades-long effort to undermine public education in the state um, by the Republican Party, and um, this is this is something that um, you know, folks. I can only speak from my experience in Milwaukee, um, but folks in Milwaukee have known for for decades um, has been a priority of Republican legislators, and um, the the idea that um, they're willing that the legislature is willing to leave $2.3 billion in federal funding on the table um, out of sort of some political interest in, in you know, undermining public education is uh, really, really upsetting on a number of levels. Um, it's shortchanging our future um, because, of course, we need, uh, we need, our, our children, our future to be cliche, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, undermining their education and putting the quality of the schools and the, you know, quality of the teachers that we can attract at risk um, is, is extremely short-sighted, um, but it's also really short-sighted for, for the state budget. And, um, you know, there's been some hullabaloo um, this past week about new revenue estimates coming in that the state is gonna get, um, you know, higher, higher revenues to the tune of a few billion dollars than anticipated. And so um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the Republican logic here is like, well, we don't need some of this federal money because we have a lot of our own money, but 
um, my answer to that would be, but why don't we want all the money um, so that we can fund all of the things and we can have good things? Um, <laughs> so yeah, this is it is a short-sighted in a number of different ways. Uh, Robert. Let me just say, and this is aimed more at our governor's messaging gurus that, and not at Claire, this is not about fiscal imprudence. This is about their whole view of the economy and society and who they actually represent. So they are telling you that they have an interest in keeping a low road, low wage economy without benefits because that provides cheap exploitable labor so that their allies can continue to make money that way, period. And a lot of, and a lot of the uh, members of the state assembly on the Republican side actually come from this sort of profession. They are, they are the bosses, they are not the workers. And so it, it's this myth that people who were working, if you're, on, if you're on unemployment, you were working and you lost your job because of the pandemic, are sitting there on their couches because they don't want to go back to work as opposed to all of the myriad reasons. Do I have childcare? Can I, does a shift work to take care of my family or my elders, right? Uh, will I be paid even a, even a living wage? Well, how will I get healthcare? All of that, which is at the heart of why some of these low road labor models are having trouble getting workers. There was a uh, ice cream store in Pittsburgh that raised its uh, wage to $15 an hour. There's all there's a, should they, they're facing a shortage of workers like every other kind of, uh, of restaurant and, and in uh, Pittsburgh. And they immediately had over a thousand applicants and filled their positions within an hour and a half. So that just tells you it's whether you're going to pay them a living wage or not. And, this not only takes away the $300 extra, it also takes away all benefits from workers who are independent contractors who are gig workers, like a working for Uber or Lyft or one of those entities. Another workaround that the Plutoxy is using to exploit people, because without that, they don't get anything. This, the, you have to take the $300 for regular workers in order to also get the federal government to pay for unemployment for all the workers who are not covered by the unemployment system. And by the way, it, it saves Uber and Lyft money, just the most obvious examples, but it makes these workers even more vulnerable and exploitable, and they are temporarily covered by the unemployment insurance system. So this is who they are. This is not a mistake. And the question is whether enough voters will see in all of this so we can communicate more effectively to them what this means about who represents them and who doesn't. And Robert, it is more than just that they are like allies of this, of, of business interests. Uh, Stefan, Stefan, uh, David Stefan up in uh, the Green Bay area, good folks at Green Bay, your state rep actually uh, got upset that uh, Democrats would even suggest they had uh, any right discussing this because 80% of the Republicans in the state assembly are business owners. So they don't just like represent the interests of, they are the business owners. Uh, Claire, I wanted to give you an opportunity to continue also, right? Like you also brought up the, the, this ridiculous stuff that they're doing this week around schools. But in addition to that, right? And not only this UI, they continue to be pushing and, and passing bills that are gonna restrict voting. We saw more of that this week looking to restrict absentee voting and also punishing municipalities who actually might try to look to divert resources away from policing into other resources. Uh, Claire, your thoughts on some of the other actions of the Republicans this week in the legislature. 
Well, I will say, first of all, when you started talking about the financial elections, the JSC, my mind immediately went to the money that was being left on the table for education. And I completely like missed the point that we were talking about unemployment insurance. So I'm sorry for all of our listeners who were super confused about why I was talking about public education funding. As well, a former school board member, that is fully understandable. Uh, it's it's an obscene decision by the Republicans. Um, it's just, but I, like, I think it shows there are just so many issues like this that the Repu- where the Republicans are leaving money on the table, right? I mean, like we're talking about leaving billions on the table for um, healthcare with magic care expansion, billions on the table for education funding, billions like on the table for um, unemployment, right? Like it's so easy to conflate all these issues because they're making so many bad decisions. That's my defense. <laughs> Claire, you don't have to defend yourself. Look, it's uh, it is hard to keep track of everything <laughs> terrible that's going on. In addition, the just the hypocrisy that they would argue that the additional state revenue money that we found out about this week that somehow that they would be excited about that. That revenue is almost all because of what the Democrats did at the federal level and the money that came came in. So anyways, with that, though, we got to take a break. When we get back, uh, we are going to be joined by Peter Rickman. He is with MASH, which is the Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers Union. And we're going to talk about a very exciting campaign that they're about to kick off uh, for janitors in Wisconsin. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are fortunate to have Peter Rickman with MASH joining us. And for folks who don't know, MASH is the Milwaukee Area Hospitality and Service Workers Union. And uh, Peter is the director, leader of that. Uh, in fact, I think he's the president of the, of, the, of the union. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks uh, for having me on here. Not only the president, I'm also a member. There you go. Perfect. Well, Peter, we had you on because you're all launching a really critical campaign next week called Justice for Janitors. Some of our listeners may be familiar with uh, uh, this campaign, but uh, it's going to be a little different this year and you're kicking it off next week. And it's super important to, you know, how we change our economy in, in not only in Milwaukee, but in this country. Tell our listeners about this campaign and why it's so important and why they need to get involved. Forgive me for answering your question with a question, Matt, but uh, I'd be curious about your take on, you know, should I give a little bit of the background on the Justice for Janitors movement here in America? Yeah, I, I think you should, because I think it's really important. Uh, it It's part of the broader context of, like, what kind of economy do we want to have in this country? Well, about 30 years ago, 30 years ago in cities like Los Angeles, just I'll use that as an example because it's a really important signal point for the movement to win justice for janitors. Cleaners in the commercial office buildings owned by the titans of finance and insurance and real estate, uh, those cleaning jobs were outsourced and turned into the, the kinds of jobs we have too many of here today. Low paid, no benefits, totally absent of dignity and respect for the workers. And these were largely filled by uh, women of color uh, in, and oftentimes immigrants. And <clears throat> these janitors, these cleaners came together and said, basta, enough is enough. And organized to take on some of the wealthiest, richest people in the world to win things like a living wage. 
to win respect on the job, to end <laughs> sexual harassment. And they were able to take those folks on and beat them with a union. And in uh, June 15th of uh, 1990 was the, was the year, uh, was the point at which <clears throat> these janitors broke through. And they broke through actually by taking a beating from the cops. And the public was so outraged about what cops were doing to janitors who were organized in a union. People were so upset about what was going on at the hands of these building owners that they sided with the cleaners and said, everybody deserves a good and decent job. And they're just fighting for what every American wants to have. So now every year on June 15th, we celebrate justice for Janitor's Day. And we've continued to build a movement across the country. And here in Milwaukee, <clears throat> In the mid-1990s, the Justice for Janitors movement was able to secure a union contract for the folks who clean our downtown office buildings. Every, uh, uh, every time that that contract is up, we launch a campaign to win more for janitors, and they're able to fight and win more because they have a union contract. So July 31st, the janitor's contract expires this year. So this year on Justice for Janitors Day, we're launching a fight <clears throat> not only to win a new union contract for janitors, which I'd love to talk about what's at stake, but also to use this fight to show people what can happen when we come together, build the power through organizations like our units to take on the billionaires, the building owners and the boss class to get what everyone had to have, a living wage, healthcare for all, rights and respect, security and employment. So that's what we're doing this coming Tuesday. And I, I hope folks join us at 3 p.m. at Zeidler Union Square. That's our park, Working People's Park here in Milwaukee. Zeidler Union Square, right in the heart of downtown. So join us at 3 p.m. to hear from janitors who are fighting for the kind of contract, the kind of union contract that every working person ought to have. And we'll be drawing in folks from other unions who are fighting for the same thing and from community allies who can talk about what's at stake. And you're going to have to interrupt me here, gang, because as you may know, I was trained in law school to talk and tell the judge interrupt. <laughs> I got a lot to say here. Well, well, look, Peter, one thing that is not lost on myself and I'm sure a number of our listeners is right. We're just coming out of a pandemic here and it's workers like janitors who, you know, were described as essential workers, you know, throughout this pandemic. Right. And I think everyone agrees that they are. Uh, it is a campaign like this. It is an opportunity for us to actually back up those values and, and, and show them that they are valued. And it's absolutely critical to our community. I wish you could talk a little bit more about that. And then, uh, Robert, you can get the uh, first follow-up question. Well, janitors, cleaners have always been essential. And it was a pandemic that illustrated that. But you can say the same thing for nursing home workers or hospital dietary aides. You know, we finally understood as a society about a year ago just how essential the working class is to the day-to-day -day lives of everybody. And Milwaukee works because we do. And it's time we ensure that the people who operate the downtown buildings or staff our hospitals and nursing homes. And you can fill in the blank from there. It's time we make sure that everybody brings home a living wage and has healthcare and rights, respect, dignity, and security on the job. So that's what this contract campaign is about. So on Tuesday, <clears throat> we launch our janitors contract campaign, Justice for Janitors. We're also gonna be hearing from, for example, nursing home workers who are fighting for 15 as a down payment on a real living wage, who are fighting to build their union to win even more. Those are the kinds of things that janitors are going to the bargaining table to win as well. You know, I, I just got to say before Robert gets in, we called folks essential workers and nothing happened here in society. We didn't raise the minimum wage. We didn't take care of folks. You know what janitors got? You know what nursing home workers got? They got pizza parties and yard signs 
and this is a family podcast, so I'm not going to tell you what I really think about it, but pizza parties and yard signs don't pay the rent. They don't put food on the table. And it's outrageous that janitors here are staring down the barrel of economic insecurity after serving society so admirably with struggle and sacrifice. They lost one of their comrades, <clears throat> someone who cleans one of the largest office buildings in downtown Milwaukee, 411 East, one of the highest profile real estate addresses in Milwaukee, where even one of the largest cleaners in the world has their Milwaukee headquarters. There was a janitor there who lost his life to COVID. And it's unacceptable that janitors have to be fighting for just basic health and safety protections here and, and a living wage after we called them essential. I'm going to get off my high horse and let Robert get in on that. So it is interesting, Peter, that the CEOs don't want pizza parties and lawn signs to uh, support their service. If it's, or if it's actually service, they expect stock options. So it's very interesting how that works, right? We have a society that values people based on money, except for people we call essential. Uh, it's more than go figure. That's how the system is rigged. What I liked about your narrative, that was, a, that was uh, by the way, Peter has much more to say about this than he said. He was admirably brief and about the mechanics of the whole organizing. Uh, but you talked about the agency of the workers. In other words, if the workers had just said, when are the building owners going to give us a fair wage? they would still not have a fair wage. And it, the, you know, we, in our earlier segment, we were talking about how we're just sitting here ho hoping Mansion turns around, Setter Mansion, Setter Cinema, as opposed to our agency in making the situation change. And by the way, I assume it wasn't like we go and we march and we get together and then everything, the walls fall, there's defeat after defeat, and you stick together until you have victory, right? And you have a problem in Milwaukee, I know, you probably want to talk about this, that yes, we have uh, a union janitors in downtown Milwaukee, but virtually nowhere else in the state of Wisconsin. So this movement needs to spread. And there are huge structural barriers that we all as a progressive movement need to work to work on to change that because there are a lot of janitors and other essential workers who would like to have a union and there are an incredible number of barriers put up uh, against that. So, but these janitors overcame it, but we both need to and a movement, because this is a huge social, economic, and racial justice issue, right? We both have to change the structure, but also support these workers who take on the fight themselves and are the heroes in, in bringing, you know, restoring the working class. Well, you're right, Robert, that we're not going to transform the lives of working class people in Milwaukee or Marshfield until we build the power through labor organizations for working class folks to balance things out with the boss class. <clears throat> And as it happens, when janitors go to the table this summer, as we kick off this contract campaign Tuesday, 3 p.m. Zeidler Union Square, be there. As janitors go to the table, there's three main demands. And one of them is $15 an hour as a minimum wage, as a down payment on a real living wage. Second of all, it's about a voice and a seat at the table on health and safety. When janitors face down this pandemic, no one asks them, what do they need? As far as PPE, nobody asked janitors, do you know how to use these new chemicals that you're being told that, that have to be applied for, for surface cleaning? Janitors need a voice and a seat at the table, just like every worker does. But right here, right now, we can put a, a tangible face on what that, what that has meant for them. <clears throat> the third thing, though, is about ensuring that every janitor in Milwaukee has the ability to be covered by the union contract and so that janitors together have the power to win even more. You know, it's good for janitors 
that our union to have a 25 to 35% pay premium over their non-union counterparts. Union janitors have healthcare, non-union janitors don't. And, and I've been on this program before, this esteemed panel of people, an august body, talking about sectoral bargaining, where all the employers in an industry come together at the table with representatives of the workers. Janitors in Milwaukee actually already have that. So we are using this contract campaign to build, to show that there's a model for how we can ensure that every cleaner and every service worker in Wisconsin has the ability to sit at the table with the bosses in their industry and negotiate what, what every working person ought to have. That sectoral bargaining project here is not only about broadening the coverage of who benefits from a union contract, but it's also about making sure that we working people <clears throat> have the power to win. Janitors power comes from their ability to disrupt business as usual. And if 300 janitors walked out on Tuesday, downtown would shut down. That's the power that they have to win. Maybe that gets to 15. Maybe it gets to a real living wage over time, but at 500, 1,000, 10,000 janitors in Milwaukee, Southeast Wisconsin, Wisconsin walked out, that's the power to win what we all deserve. So, this so folks, they need your support, everybody. So folks, you got to get out next Tuesday in Milwaukee, June 15th. So please get out. Peter, thanks for joining us. We got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We're running a little late. We'll see we you at 3 thank- p.m. on Tuesday. Zeidler Union Square, Justice for Janitors Day. And with that, we're going to bring this show to a close. Want to remind folks, we'll be out at our inoculation emancipation party on Saturday, June 12th in Fitchburg, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. I'll be there. Look forward to seeing you. Come say hello to me. Claire, are you going to be there? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, Claire will be at one. With that, we'll talk to you all next week at the Battleground, Wisconsin.